0: I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, November 6th. This is an election update from Post Reports. Can I just ask, what has the last 48 hours been like for you?
1: A lot of waiting, a lot of looking at Steve Kornacki and John (laughs) King. Uh, Refreshing websites talking to the Biden campaign, texting with them, trying to figure out what their latest thinking is and how they're interpreting the numbers.
0: Matt Viser is a national political reporter for The Post. And for the last few days, he's been in close contact with the Biden campaign.
1: So their mood has certainly been more upbeat. I don't think it was ever downcast, but this dragged out longer than I think even they expected. But kind of over the last 24 hours, I would say, uh, you know, they've kind of liked a lot of the results that they've seen. Uh, They felt that they would always kind of pull ahead in these states. It was just a matter of time and sort of when they could declare victory. And, you know, as of early this afternoon, they were preparing for kind of a, a big celebration tonight. So certainly preparations seem to be underway for the race to be called and for them to declare victory.
0: So right now it is a little bit past one thirty p.m. on Friday. Obviously, we're all still waiting for results of the election. Everything is very fast moving. The count is continuing in these several critical states. And it's likely that by the time people listen to this, that they will know a lot more than we do now. But what do the trends say so far of where we're headed?
1: Overnight, we had Biden move into the lead in Georgia. We've had him expanding his lead in Pennsylvania throughout today. So, I mean, really the expectation is that his lead in these states is only going to grow as more mail-in ballots, which are disproportionately Biden voters, are are counted. I mean, he needs one more state, basically. (laughs) If it's Pennsylvania, that puts him over the top. There are other pathways for him still available, but We're in this sort of weird phase where the race has not yet been officially called. They certainly expect it will be officially called between now and and when Joe Biden takes the stage tonight in Wilmington.
0: But I think that, Regardless of what does or doesn't get called in the next day over the weekend, it's clear that there's going to continue to be a battle over this or at least an attempt by the Trump campaign and by Trump himself to make this look like a victory that was not clearly won for Biden. So how is his campaign kind of looking toward the steps after? this potential victory speech to try to defend against attacks that some of the votes for Biden have been fraudulent.
1: It's going to be interesting sort of these next few days. And we should also point out, we don't know at this moment whether there's been any communication at all between the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign. You know, there's not the kind of attempts to set up a concessionary phone call, which typically takes place at moments like this. When the country has sort of settled on who the victor is of an election, that does not seem to be uh, the case this time around and probably wasn't expected to be the case given President Trump. But I think over the next couple of days, you'll see the Biden campaign move more into a transitionary moment where they are transitioning and planning to accept and be sworn in. And will begin to announce chief of staff and start trying to assemble who their key cabinet positions will be filled by. And I think they will be moving in that direction just as Trump and his allies are continuing to try to sow doubt in the election results.
0: So you expect that that will happen even if there continues to be legal battles or if a recount is officially requested in a state like Georgia?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the Biden campaign feels like the numbers are enough for them, that their margins are outside of any sort of margin of error, that typically in these recounts, maybe there's a couple hundred votes that change, but not the thousands that they anticipate they will be ahead by. So, you know, there would have to be sort of something monumental to change their outlook on their current positioning. But I think there's key questions over whether Trump will engage in a transition process. And there are things that he has control over. The GSA administrator, which is the General Services Administration, has to declare a winner for the transition process to technically begin and for the Biden campaign to be able to sort of enter into these different agencies in the federal government to begin that transition process in you know departments like the State Department or Health and Human Services Department and all these sort of areas where the Biden campaign wants to start transitioning and getting their officials meeting with Trump administration officials to begin that process. That could be an area of tension to keep an eye on sort of over the next week or so and whether the Trump administration agrees to move forward on that process or not and what legal avenues the Biden officials may have available to them to force that process to begin.
0: So then what happens if that process does get a lot more complicated and that you have members of the Trump administration who say, like, we're not going to do a transition? Like, what if there is no transition process?
1: So for the past couple of months, kind of under the radar, frankly, uh, there's been a process that's been underway where the Biden transition folks have been meeting with lower level Trump administration sort of bureaucrats and starting this transition process. But for it to continue and for it to actually move forward into a more formal process, the results have to be ascertained is sort of the technical term. Typically, that process happens within hours of of an election being called, and it's a fairly uncontroversial decision. The question in this case is how and whether the transition process will move forward to begin the whole process of just transitioning into a new administration.
0: What else are some of the things that the Biden campaign will be cautious about as they look towards this possible transition?
1: I think one thing that is on their minds is the Biden campaign and probably Democrats more broadly wanted this election to be a widespread and broad repudiation of President Trump. and. One takeaway from this election is just how divided the country is and and how much support still exists for President Trump. You know, he's on course to get the second most votes in American history in an election, second behind only Joe Biden, uh, you know. And so I think for Biden, one of his core messages in his campaign was about unity and bringing a divided country together. But I think the results are proving just how difficult of a challenge that's going to be for him. Particularly at a time when we don't know the balance of power in the Senate, where Republicans may very well have control over that chamber. And that's going to affect Biden's governing style and sort of how he might be able to change things. I I think the challenges with governing and with the divisions in the country are still huge. And I think that's going to be Biden's major challenge as he sort of confronts these next two months or so in a transition phase.
0: Matt Viser is a national political reporter for The Post. So, Ashley, describe what it's like
2: inside the White House right now. It's very much whip sign, as you might expect.
0: Ashley Parker covers the White House for The Post.
2: By turns, we've had a president who has been defiant and angry, waking up and talking to advisors about, I want to go out, I want to talk about how I'm the true winner, how this election is being stolen, and a president who in some moments, his top team has described him to us as kind of deflated and subdued, coming to grips with this idea that, you know, even if he chooses to tell himself that the election uh, was stolen, coming to grips with the idea that in January of 2021, he will no longer be president.
1: Good evening, I'd like to provide the American people with an update on our efforts to protect the integrity of our very important
2: 2020 election. When he has come out and spoken, he is in some ways what he's saying is, is dangerous and false and baseless and there's that flavor of the angry defiance.
1: If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. If you count the votes that came in late.
2: But he's doing it in a kind of subdued, exhausted, deflated, bitter way. And so I think you're getting to see if you even just look at his public comments, the real range of emotions that this man who hates nothing more than losing is experiencing as he prepares quite possibly
0: to lose. And I think that difference in what you're seeing inside the White House versus in these public statements from President Trump is very interesting because I think people were genuinely galled at the idea of President Trump coming out on Thursday saying, I have claimed these states as if that's a thing that a presidential candidate can just do is claim them. And it was so so confident, so bullish, so sort of ignorant of reality. But what you're saying is behind the scenes that there is more of that couching uh, his statements in a sense of, well, if I do lose, it's because of fraud. It's because of uh, misdeeds and wrongdoings. And that he, it sounds like is starting to reckon with a reality in which he does not win.
2: Yes, I think two things. One is you're you are right that what the president said was dangerous, unacceptable, and galling for a portion of Americans. But there there's people in Trump's base and Trump supporters who who are fully behind him and think that you know, tweeting "I hereby claim victory in Pennsylvania" is a legitimate way to claim victory in Pennsylvania, even though again, it's not. So it's not necessarily as galling for his supporters as it is for everyone else. But yes, there are moments where Trump is coming to grips or at least grappling with the idea that he might end up vacating the White House and that Joe Biden might be the next president of the United States. But it's important to note there, to my understanding, the president very much is couching all versions of Joe Biden may be the next president. I may need to vacate uh, the White House in terms of this very false idea that it's because the election was stolen from him and that he's not the rightful loser. He's the rightful winner who still may have to leave because of this fraud. Uh, My understanding is that Trump has not really grappled with he lost because more people voted for Joe Biden, not just in the popular vote, but more people voted for Joe Biden in the states that matter in the Electoral College Mm -hmm. and that he actually lost fair and square by the rules with which this Democratic nation chooses our president. He, he is so far couching any loss that it may be a reality, but in these conspiracy theory ideas that it, it's not, quote unquote, a real loss in his mind.
0: I also want to talk briefly about Republican Party leadership and how President Trump and the White House feels about the response from from Republican Party leadership, because we've seen uh, Donald Trump Jr. talk about how they need more allies in this fight for uh, reclaiming the vote counting and basically give this sense that they feel like they're out here alone. And yet at the same time, I think that there's been a lot of surprise at how few Republicans high up in the party have actually come out and said that what President Trump is doing, the the falsehoods that he's saying, that it's actively undermining the democratic process when he goes on Twitter on Thursday morning and and starts commanding, stop the count.
2: And his aides kind of had to intervene
0: and explain to him, well, you'd actually
2: lose right now, right? Joe Biden is ahead in all of these states. So then he tweeted, stop the fraud, which is, again, misleading, because as we've discussed, there is no fraud. But but that at least... Hmm is a decent message for him. If he's willing to be dishonest, it's not a bad message that you don't want to count fraudulent votes. So you have had some Republicans kind of trying to split the difference. You, the, I think the best example of this was Vice President Mike Pence, who never contradicts Donald Trump, his boss, but he sent out a tweet Thursday night that said, I stand with President Trump, you know, only count legal votes. Well, let's be clear. Everyone only wants to count legal hmm. votes. That's what Joe Biden wants. That's what the Democrats want. That's actually how a democracy works. You count up all the legal votes and then you decide who's won and who's lost. So that that's not actually what Trump wants to do. He's he's saying that at some points, but if if the legal votes are counted and he loses, he's still going to claim fraud. So you did have Don Jr., his oldest son, uh, Eric Trump, another one of his sons, you know, basically coming out and saying, pretty, pretty pointedly and pretty starkly, look, if you're a 2024 Republican hopeful, so uh, you know, a Republican rising star who thinks they're going to run for president in 2024, you know, you need to be on our side in this fight. You need to be out here carrying torches with us and fighting the good fight. Hmm. And embedded in that is this idea, which, which I think is is true, has some merit. Is is even if Donald Trump loses even if he's not the president, Donald Trump and the Trump family and the Trump brand and Trumpism are going to have tremendous sway over the Republican Party Hmm. for the very least the next few years.
0: We know that there are multiple steps left in the process for the winner of the election to officially be declared. But usually an important step in that process is a concession speech, where the loser in that race officially concedes to the winner. And I'm wondering if you think that there is a world in which President Trump gives a concession speech in the style that we're accustomed to seeing from presidential candidates.
2: That's a great question. And, you know, obviously, we don't know, but it feels like the answer is no. The idea of a gracious concession where you say, you know, you thank your supporters, you say, we put up a good fight, but we lost fair and square. And at the end of the day, you know, I want what my opponent wants. It's to what's best for the American people and, and to keep fighting the good fight. And, you know, uh, I'm going to invite them over to the White House in a couple of days um, and I'm going to appear at their inauguration. And we are going to do all these sort of ceremonial things that that have a deeply symbolic import for a peaceful transition of power that does not seem like what Donald Trump is going to do. I think his aides and are hoping in a best-case scenario they can get him to sort of admit that he will no longer be president and he needs to leave the White House. But I think trying to get him to do it uh, graciously and, you know, in what we think of as a sort of traditionally presidential way is a is a bridge too far to expect right now.
0: Ashley Parker covers the White House for The Post.
3: My name is Ishan Tharoor. I'm a foreign affairs columnist here at The Post and an author of Today's Worldview, The Post's International Affairs Newsletter.
0: So, Ishan, you you actually just voted for the first time in the U.S., right?
3: Yes, indeed. I I naturalized uh, this year after three decades living in this country, but I only became a citizen this year. And uh, I had the very exciting experience uh, on Friday, going to an early voting center in D.C. and casting my first ballot in my first election ever.
0: How does it feel having that experience squaring with these days since the election?
3: It feels like a long time ago, even though it wasn't that long ago. My experience of voting was this one of really participating in this this very united civic act, this right of, a, of citizenship where you're going to cast a ballot. All the poll workers are there to help you. When I told the poll worker this is my first time to vote, she yelled out that this is a first time voter and I got a, a really moving round of applause from mm. everybody working in the room as well as other voters standing in line. And so I, it was this moment where I felt so bound to the people around me, to the, the rights of citizenship in the United States, to the aspirations of living in a democracy and wanting it to be better and wanting to also you know, honor our capacity to make it better that was also powerful and moving. And now we're watching this rather intense, divisive process of tallying these votes, a process that has been called into question by some camps, and a process which you would assume is one that shows the best of this country turn into one that probably is going to be the source of acrimony and discord for some time to come.
0: And in thinking about that acrimony that has already become clear in the process of counting ballots, you've been writing about how one of the big takeaways of this election is just about Trumpism and the fact that Trumpism seems to really be an enduring part of this country. Tell me more about what you mean by that.
3: Right. And the piece I wrote was not particularly profound. I just suggested that no matter the outcome of this election, uh, Trumpism is here with us now. Trumpism has captured the Republican Party.
0: And, And when you say Trumpism, do you mean the support of Trump supporters for President Trump as a human being? Or do you mean something larger than that?
3: I think the way I conceive of it is an American brand of... The sort of demagogic nationalism that you're seeing in many other countries around the world, whether it's in Brazil with Jair Bolsonaro, or whether it's in other countries in Europe, say Hungary or Poland, where you have these rulers who have espoused a very divisive brand of majoritarian politics, and then you see other versions of what I what I call demagogic nationalism in Turkey, in India, and in the Philippines, and the list goes on and on and on. But I think uh, what's quite critical when you're thinking through what Trumpism is is its impact on the body politic, the ways in which it's carved out competing spheres that seem irreconcilable. Of course, Trumpism will exist beyond Trump because it wasn't always about Trump in the first place he He was a symptom of a whole series of conditions in American society and politics that led to this kind of nationalist movement. And so part of the reason why uh, we will have Trumpism after Trump is because there was this atmosphere for this kind of politics well before Trump.
0: And I think that it's Interesting to think about how much Trumpism is able to adapt and and survive when you think about the reputation that President Trump had coming into the presidency, that he was this outsider, that he embodied this person who is not of Washington. And still four years later, when he very much is not an outsider anymore, when he like has demonstrated that he's not the person who's draining the swamp or that he has kind of become synonymous with the Republican Party that that idea around Trump has continued to survive and thrive, even though he's in a very different position now than he was four years ago.
3: That's absolutely right. Given all that we've seen over the past four years, the fact that he was impeached, the toll of the coronavirus, and all sorts of other incendiary things that he said, Trump has still managed to grow the number of votes he won from 2016. We have not seen the kind of moral rejection of Trump that I'm sure many Democrats hope to see in this election and what we were thought was were possibly going to happen given the polling that we had uh, before the election. So what is very clear is that this country is, and this is such a truism at this point, is bitterly divided. And what makes Trumpism more intense and what makes the world that we live in so defined by Trumpism as we have experienced it is the fact also in this country that there are increasingly parallel spheres of information and you don't really see uh that many direct comparisons versions of this in other parts of the world Mm. parallel news networks and websites that feed them what they want to hear i would suggest that it's not exactly a symmetrical thing for right and left i think it's much more of an issue with when you look at what exists on the right than what exists for liberals or others who consume news from mainstream websites And that that will remain after this election that will be fueled by probably a great degree of outrage over having lost the election if Trump does lose. And we will be uh, in the midst of a a pretty uh, long and grueling political cold civil war, as people have been calling it.
0: And I'm curious what the reaction has been abroad as we watch this, as you describe it as a cold civil war unfolding in the U.S., what have been the responses from world leaders so far?
3: Well, most world leaders are, are watching it cautiously, but you have had statements from, you know, leading European officials making the kinds of statements you hear from Western officials when they're, they're watching a troubled democracy or a fledgling democracy in uh, a poorer part of the world. You have uh, European officials saying that they're concerned that the integrity of the election is being challenged by the president of the United States, Organizations like the OSCE, which is this block that the U.S. usually supports, the OSCE sent a mission to the United States where it really challenged what Trump was doing and reminded Americans and the American authorities of their fundamental obligations Hmm. to count all the votes. So it's it's presented a, a really different image of the U.S. to the world than I'm sure most Americans would want to present it's led to some people and especially in countries that we consider to be more at odds with the United States, say Russia or China or Iran, even to look and say, look at this American system, mm. uh, look at its failures, look at its weaknesses. One Russian politician said, I'm grabbing popcorn. <laughs> uh, this is a sign of uh, the decline of, uh, of, of, of American democracy. Mm. So uh, I think at a certain level, uh, especially places like China and Russia, They wanted most this sense of uncertainty. I mean, more than, say, one result for Biden or Trump, they wanted a scenario where the whole American system is thrown into crisis and jeopardy by the outcome of this election.
0: You know, I I think that every time we talk about how the rest of the world is responding to crises in the U.S., we talk about this idea of schadenfreude. And I think that there is a lot of that right now, the sense that America has always been sort of this entity of finger pointing to other countries that are like failing in their democratic processes. And here we are with a political leader who is claiming power in in ways that that ignore or subvert the democratic process. But I also feel like there is a genuine sense of concern about how destabilizing the divisions coming out of this election could be to the rest of the world.
3: There is concern. I think in some parts of the world, there is a desire for stable, predictable American leadership. And that begins with a stable and predictable American governance structure. At the same time, I think we are also in a situation where whether it's politicians in Europe or Asia or Latin America, many are saying that, look, the world isn't what it once was in the 20th century. We don't need the American superpower for everything. We want to see the U.S. as a proactive member of the international community, but they don't necessarily need the U.S. to be its guarantor in the ways that it did before. So chaos in America doesn't necessarily have direct spillover effects elsewhere, but it certainly does buttress some of the, the claims of some kinds of governments in various parts of the world, whether it is, as I said, governments that are somewhat adversarial to the United States, being able to say, look, your political system, you keep on lecturing us about our politics, but look at your politics. That's certainly the hypocrisy or the irony around American lecturing about rights and democracy is on full view uh, right now. And then at the same time, in places like like Europe or particularly in Western Europe, people worrying that, look, maybe this is just an extension of a broader malaise settling into Western democracies. We're seeing the scenario not as acutely in other places as it is in the US, where you have increased polarization, where you have people inhabiting parallel information ecosystems, uh, where you have an increasingly fractured sense of of what is good for the nation, and political contexts that are seemingly more and more tribal. And uh, people don't want to go down the path they see America has gone down.
0: Ishan Tharoor is a foreign affairs columnist at The Post and an author of the newsletter Today's Worldview.